epic confrontations between good and evil, ruminations on mortality, eternity, and great beauty, an ever-present reminder that it is the small, ordinary folks that keep the darkness at bay through small acts of kindness and love. The works of J.R.R. Tolkien have been an ever-present myth of epic proportions in our lifetimes. Today on Logosish, we explore Tolkien's ideas about myth, as well as how his Christian faith influenced the Silmarillion, The Hobbit, and The Lord of the Rings. Hey guys, welcome back to Logos-ish. We are so excited to be here this morning. We are talking about J.R.R. Tolkien. We might even find out what the J.R.R. means today. <laughs> but in the meantime, right before we nerd out, let's talk a little bit. Let's catch up a little bit. This is the first time we've had all of our hosts together in a while. So how's everybody doing today? I've been uh, doing great. Sorry I've missed the past couple. Uh, we've been busy at the house and lots of meetings during the year, but it's just been, uh, it's just been great to be back with you guys. And uh, my long saga of being homeless finally ended. So it is good to be in my home at last, settling, and uh, I should be able to make the rest of the episodes from here. Nice. So are you completely unpacked? Now that's that's the challenge. Oh, hell no. Um, <laughs> he he was telling us last night that he has a living room or a dining room table in his dining room, but it's not put together. So it's just a box that's just sitting, you know, about two inches above the floor. And that's his dining room table right now. Well, that's that's pretty impressive. We had to wait. Can I guess that stays like that for a while <laughs> uh, until y'all show up? Yeah, <laughs> we're doing great down in South Carolina, really enjoying the very few days of cold weather that we get here, um, or cool but not cold weather, yeah. Yeah, South Carolina has never seen cold weather in its life. Though I do have it on good authority from a lady who's almost 100 years old nearby us that there was once a blizzard in South Carolina. In fact, it may have even snowed regularly at one point. All right, let's dive in. Let's do it. So today our guest is Dr. Jeffrey Morrow, professor of theology at Immaculate Conception Seminary at Stephen Hall. Dr. Morrow, how are you doing today? I am wonderful. Thanks for having me. We are so excited to have you here. And we're all like, you know, big, I think, fantasy nerds. So talking about Tolkien is sort of like a dream come true. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you come to be professor of theology? Well, that's a, that's a long story. I'll... Uh... I'll try to be brief, but so I grew up sort of as an agnostic Jew, and uh, when I got to college as an undergraduate student at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, I became an evangelical Protestant Christian. I, I came to faith in Jesus. A lot of things that helped me in that, uh, the, the works that helped me the most were by a professor of mine, actually, a history professor, Edwin Yamauchi, and, uh, and also I had two friends, Jason Shanks and Biff Roca who were very influential as well. They, they call that a Bible study that I, I kind of joined. And then through that exploration, I eventually became Catholic as well. In my Easter vigil of 1999 at the end of my sophomore year of college. So that's a whole other saga in the journey. And then I was so interested in theology. I was studying zoology and psychology and anthropology, but most of my time was studying theology, the scriptures, history, ancient Greek. So I decided to go off and pursue formal training in theology. So I, I went off to the University of Dayton, just sort of down the road from Miami, and I got my master's degree 
in Catholic theology, focusing on sacred scripture. And then I ended up getting my PhD as well. So I got my PhD in theology, um, historical theology, so kind of church history, Catholic theology. But my focus on my dissertation dealt with the history of modern biblical interpretation. So actually, although I, I have this book on J.R.R. Tolkien, the overwhelming majority of my research deals with sort of what the last chapter of the book deals with, and that's the history of modern biblical scholarship. That's kind of what most of my, my work does. I was hired by Immaculate Conception Seminary at Seton Hall University in New Jersey. Um, this is in 2009. So I, I, um, before that, I, got, I met my wife, Maria, and we got married while I was in graduate school. She was in the doctoral program as well. And uh, we now have seven children, the oldest of which is 14 and the youngest of which is seven months. So we're, we're pretty busy. That certainly sounds like a lot of work. But yeah, congratulations. It sounds like it's been a fun journey. So let's talk about Tolkien. Like what led you to write this series of essays? Uh, the, the book we're talking about today is titled Seeking the Lord of Middle Earth. Uh, and it's a series of essays you wrote specifically about Tolkien and his Christianity and his theology and various imagery within his works. So let's let's start just sort of talking about like what led to this book in the first place. Okay, well that's a great question. Actually, it begins prior to my journey to Christianity. So I I was in my grandfather's attic when I was in seventh grade, and in his attic he had these boxes of books, and I found uh, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings among the books. And so I thought, oh, this looks interesting. I know there were some, you know, cartoon movies about these, so I thought I would read them. And so I read The Hobbit in uh, one sitting. I stayed up all night. I finished it in uh, a 24-hour period of time. And then um, and then I slept, and then I started The Lord of the Rings, and in about a week, I had read the entire Lord of the Rings. I just fell in love with it. So when I was done, I started rereading it over again. And so Tolkien's works had long been a passion of mine prior to college. And then when I became a Christian, I somehow discovered, I don't remember how this was, but I discovered that Tolkien himself was a Christian. And so I just wanted to explore that. And so in graduate school, opportunities came up to present papers at conferences dealing with religion and literature. And so I thought, well, here's somebody, it's a literary figure, J.R.R. Tolkien, and I'm interested in his Christianity, so I thought I would explore that. And then as I became a professor, I recognized that the places I had published some of these and the conferences I had been at had a very small audience. I thought I would get a better audience if I kind of turned this into a book project. And that's what I, that's basically what I did. I feel like discovering Tolkien books in an attic and in a box is like the perfect way to, to discover J.R.R. Tolkien. That's so lovely. Yeah, I think most of us, who are hosting this podcast on a regular basis probably found Tolkien in part through the Peter Jackson movies. A lot of us were coming of age right as the movies were coming out. And so like personally for me, it was that I read the Hobbit and then I sort of left it for a little while. And then the movies were coming out and I was in middle school and I was like, I should probably read the books for this because the movies are going to spoil the books and ruin the books. Right. So, you know, I uh, started reading the books alongside the movies. Is that about the same for the rest of you guys? That, that is exactly how I engaged with The Lord of the Rings and, and The Hobbit. I read The Hobbit first because my parents thought that would be best to read the first book first, even though it's not written first. And then I, 
I had to read the book before they would let me go see the movie. So that was the power my parents wielded over my middle school self. That's interesting. I discovered Tolkien in sixth grade. So this was before the movies were coming out. And my friends all had started it. Or I think two of my friends had like got The Hobbit. And my sixth grade uh, teacher knew that like if these guys started reading it, like everyone else would start reading it. So he bought a whole bunch of books personally and like handed it out uh, to anyone. So me and my semi-competitive nature, like I'm going to read these books alongside them. So it took me a little bit longer, but uh, I actually read them all before the movies came out. So, yeah. That sounds like a really good, really formative teacher right there to convince you to read by encouraging, you know, interclass competition. But, uh, you know, like one of the things that comes to mind is, as we pivot sort of towards the theology and religion side of this conversation is that, you know, Tolkien was friends with C.S. Lewis, who is probably sort of the better known figure because of his works dealing, you know, with being a Christian apologist and writing sort of more explicit theology and using more explicit allegory. So can you talk a little bit about that relationship, Jeff? Yeah, so Tolkien and Lewis were very good friends. They were scholars at Oxford University, and they had a group. It was kind of like a talk about nerds, right? They were they had a group to read ancient sagas, Icelandic sagas, Norse mythology, poetry, but they read them in the original languages. Well, Lewis was very interested in this, except he couldn't read Old Icelandic. So they decided they would read it in English translation to let him in. So he joined them and they started to write drafts of material and share it with each other. So that's actually how this began. Lewis, um, I mean, Tolkien, as one of you had mentioned already, he had begun writing the Lord of the Rings. Well, he'd been writing, he began writing the Silmarillion prior to either the Hobbit or the Lord of the Rings. What becomes the Lord of the Rings grows out of the drafts of what becomes the Silmarillion, which started with a love poem that he wrote in fantasy love poem dealing with Baron and Luthien that was inspired by his wife. And so he wrote The Hobbit for children and Lewis loved it so much, he asked him to write a sequel for them, for their friends. And that's really actually where The Lord of the Rings comes from. And so, but as they were talking, Lewis was, a, was an atheist, basically. Mm-hmm. He didn't believe in God. And he was becoming more and more convinced of God's existence to the influence, especially of G.K. Chesterton, of Chesterton's works, like The Everlasting Man, um, Orthodoxy, and things like that. But he wasn't convinced of Christianity, and two things happened at once. One is he started talking with some skeptical historians at Oxford who were trained in ancient Roman and Greek history, and they had some conversation about the New Testament, and these are skeptics. And they said, oh, no, the New Testament is very historically reliable, that it is, it's up there with the great Greek and Roman historians. And Lewis was very surprised. How can a skeptic who's a historical specialist of this time period think this? And at the same time, he was talking to Tolkien about mythology. And Lewis basically said, look, the New Testament, Christianity, this is all mythology. And Tolkien said, sure, sure, sure. It's mythology. It's fairy story. But it's fairy story that has entered history. And it was through that discussion and the discussion of this notion of you catastrophe that Lewis was able to embrace Christianity. And then he became, of course, the famous defender of the Christian faith. So you use the word eucatastrophe. Can we define that? And then can we also talk a little bit about how Tolkien and his idea of 
the function and the crafting of myth compared to other academics of his day. Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll do the best I can to do that. I think this notion, I think he published this in, I think it was a 1939 Andrew Lang lecture. I might have the date wrong. But he he basically understood the U catastrophe as a good catastrophe. right? A, you know, a catastrophe is this sudden horrible event that happens. So the U catastrophe would be this sudden turn of events where everything appears lost and now something really good happens. And he understood the greatest example of that to be Jesus's resurrection, right? This horrible catastrophe, this death of Jesus. And now all of a sudden it turns to great good through his wondrous resurrection from the dead. Now, when he looked at mythology, ancient religious traditions from Europe or wherever, Tolkien understood all of this as, as evidence that God was reaching out to everyone. And then the mythologies that people wrote, the various religious traditions before Christianity, say in Northern Europe or wherever, Tolkien understood as right, this kind of human attempt to understand what they naturally perceived. They kind of naturally perceived there's a God out there or gods or some divinity or something that's, that created reality that's calling us to worship, but they don't understand that. And so they're doing the best they can with what they know with nature and, and, and that sort of thing. But it's calling out for this, this notion that God is in a sense calling them. So there's something there. In his day, m most of the academics studying this material were, were skeptical of Christianity, even if they came from Christian backgrounds nominally, nominally so. Their Christianity was probably more like my Judaism growing up. I wasn't a, a person of faith. Neither were they. And, and one of the famous examples of this is, again, an Oxford colleague of his from Germany named Friedrich Max Müller. And Max Müller is actually a very important 19th century figure for the development of the modern scholarly approach to the study of religion, of world religions, sometimes called comparative religion, where the religions of the world are studied from an agnostic perspective. And, and Christianity becomes kind of one more among all of these different religions. And what Mueller argued was that mythology was the disease of language, right? A famous example he gives is of the sun, right? So we look at the sun and we say it, it is uh, almost, we talk about the sun like a person. The sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And that's kind of how we, we discuss the sun just because that's the language used to explain what we're seeing. And then what happens over time is we forget that we're just trying to describe what we're observing. And we say, well, if the sun rises and sets, it must be a person like me. who well, I get up in the morning, I go to bed at night. So the sun is rising like a person, but of course it must be greater than me, so it must be a god. And that's where mythology and religion comes from, according to Friedrich Max Mueller. And of course, Tolkien thinks this is, this is nonsense. He thinks that rather, if anything, he has this kind of humorous line where he says, if if anything, language is a disease of mythology. He doesn't mean anything. He doesn't mean anything methodological by that. He just means he's just trying to be cute and say that that language really finds its greatest expression in poetry, in mythology, in religious sentiment. And if anything, that's what language is for. That's why we have language. It's not that language we forget what things mean. We create this mythological world. It's the opposite. We understand that that the longing that we find in mythology is a longing of the human heart, our heart's desire for God, right? As St. Augustine 
famously said, our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they find their rest in you. That's what Tolkien is basically saying about language, religion, and mythology. And it stands in, in stark contrast to most of the academics of his day. You're talking about how language is used to describe uh, the world, the observed world around you. Um, what comes to my mind is I, I studied uh, psychology for undergrad, so Freud automatically pops up into my head and essentially projecting that longing and then creating a god. A lot of critiques of religion are about, you know, creating that. So um, you did mention Freud uh, a little bit throughout, um, but I always thought that was really interesting on how uh, Tolkien came, viewed it sort of like the other side of the same coin. And I thought that was how poetry and uh, the myth wasn't fanciful or, or something like that. So, Yeah, they're roughly contemporaries, Freud and Tolkien and Lewis. There's a fantastic book, uh, I believe it's by Armand Nicolai, who was a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, called um, Speaking of God. And it's a fictional kind of dialogue, not dialogue, not really a fictional dialogue, but he, he pits C.S. Lewis and, and Sigmund Freud on all these major issues, God, marriage, sex, the purpose of life. And he does so because he thinks Lewis may have been influenced by Freud. Lewis, when he goes into his apologetics, a lot of what he's responding to are Freud's type of arguments that you get in the future of an illusion, Moses and monotheism and totem and taboo, the three major works on religion that Freud wrote, which, wrote, which are incredibly influential, unfortunately. And, um, and so he almost sees Lewis as responding to what he believed in. And actually, they overlapped in, in Oxford at the same time. We don't know if they ever met, but they actually were in London at the same time. So it's possible. Tolkien, Lewis, and Chesterton, I think, those three are really great antidotes to kind of modern skepticism. I mean, nowadays we have all these new atheists, you know, but they're, they're kind of lightweights compared to, you know, Freud, Emil Durkheim, Max Mueller, E.B. Tyler. Some of these, these figures are a lot more. Ludwig Feuerbach, yeah. Friedrich Nietzsche. These are heavy hitting skeptics who, who, you know, Nietzsche especially knew Christianity from the inside. His parents were, were missionaries. And I, I think in some ways, Tolkien, Lewis, and Chesterton are a great response to them. When I have to teach, there's a course I have to teach sometimes. It's a core course for the university, and they require either Nietzsche, Freud, or Feuerbach, and um, I usually choose Nietzsche, and then I pin it with C.S. Lewis and Chesterton, and I find that they're helpful anecdote, you know, responses. Yeah, I had to read a lot of Feuerbach. So Feuerbach and Freud constantly would come up, and we had to read it uh, alongside Karl Barth um, and okay, his response good. to them. So I was... I guess sort of trained Bardian, but that's sort of like a typical Methodist uh, way to go about training theology. Yeah, that's I don't know, good. At least for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I encountered those figures, those skeptics in a methods course for the study of world religions. I graduated, one of my majors was comparative world religions. And we had to read these figures. And I already believed most of what they thought before I became a Christian. So for me, these were not really new ideas. I just recognized, oh, this is where this comes from. You know, this idea that, you know, we create God in our own image, you know, Feuerbach, or, you know, we're scared of the natural world. We have to have a father figure, right, Freud. That's where this comes from, these figures. I love this back and forth that's going on right now. It's really, I think, quite fun. And I, I really want to dive down this rabbit hole, but it might be something that we want to save 
for uh, <laughs> another time. But let's let's pivot back to Tolkien for a second and talk about some more specifics of, of his work in particular. You know, he had a sort of difference of opinion about how to write myth with C.S. Lewis, where C.S. Lewis was more into strict allegory. You know, things stood in for other things and that was it. You know, Tolkien kind of had a slightly more flexible way of approaching his works. So can we talk a little bit about you know, Tolkien's approach to that, that symbolism, that sort of co-opting use of different kinds of religious imagery and, and the flexibility that he used it with? Certainly. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah, so C.S. Lewis and Tolkien had a very interesting friendship, and they had very different aesthetic sensibilities, right? So Lewis, as you mentioned, in his work, he preferred a more simplistic one-for-one -one allegory, as we see in the Chronicles of Narnia, which Tolkien hated. He never liked <laughs> Narnia. I, I love Narnia personally, but um, yeah, Tolkien never liked Narnia. He thought it was too childish, too simplistic. And of course, Lewis was probably Tolkien's biggest fan for Lord of the Rings. Nobody loved Lord of the Rings as much as Lewis. Yeah, they have a lot of ironies. Lewis, when he wrote the screw tape letters, Tolkien hated it. He thought it was just, this is horrible. And he thought it was dangerous, which I think is ironic because, you know, he thought it was dangerous because you don't. You shouldn't think too much about the de demonic and evil and sin. It's just dangerous. And I think it's ironic because I actually think in the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion, Tolkien's depiction of evil in with Sauron and the fall of the angels. I'm sorry. The I'm sorry. The, the elves and the orcs and Morgoth uh, and the Ring and the temptation is actually Gollum. Is actually a, a richer depiction uh, of evil than anything Lewis kind of captures. I think what we see. In screw tape letters, we see fleshed out in a more subtlety in Tolkien. So I find that ironic. And of course, Lewis dedicated the screw tape letters to Tolkien. <laughs> but but Tolkien Tolkien preferred to write a mythology along the lines of of what the ancient Norse and Germanic peoples did. So he's very influenced by the the stuff that he read, and I think he was quite comfortable you know, recognizing that his own experience, his own religious faith, his own kind of cultural context helped give shape to that in the way that the authors of, you know, the author of Beowulf, which he was a scholar of, or some of these other folk tales, mythologies in the Northern European world were also shaped by their own religious tradition and their own background. But he, he was unique among scholars of Old English in arguing that Beowulf's author was a Christian. Um, that was pretty unique at the time, and um, but it wasn't a clear it wasn't a clear Christianity in the text. Instead, the Christianity comes out naturally within its its cultural context, as Jesus, the faith in Jesus, is incarnated differently in different parts of the world. Well, we see that in Tolkien's works as well. There's no one for one allegory. I think, as I argue in this text, that several of the figures can relate to several of the you know, figures in the Christian faith, particularly Jesus. But more of what he's doing is trying to create a, a mythology for our day, for his own day, that speaks to people's hearts. It's a world that you can inhabit that's rich. You can almost sense being there when you read his text. It's almost like it's, it's real. And what he wants people to recognize is, in a sense, the, the battle for, for good against evil. But it's a complicated evil. It's not simplistic evil the figure of Gollum is a great example of this Gollum is an example of what happens to all of us 
when we turn away from God and turn to do what we shouldn't do. And when we turn and we say, you know, no to God, yes to, to, to whatever, to sin. That can happen to all of us in the temptation of the ring, etc. And I think Tolkien was aware of this when he talks about, he, in his letters, I think this is where you really get this, is in his private letters to various people, to friends, to his children, to publishers, you start to see he acknowledges that his Christian faith was essential here. And particularly in his revisions, as he revised these texts for publication, he really was conscious of what he was doing here. It wasn't a one-for-one allegory. And he got really angry with that. People would write in the newspapers and say, oh, the orcs are communists. Or, you know, this is just, you know, well, you got bit by a spider when you were in South Africa as a child, and therefore you have this big shell-up spider. He says, this is nonsense, you know. This is crazy. You know, you're trying to understand my, my psychology and... And I'm telling you as the author, this is not what I was doing. But he also says that this really is a fundamentally religious text, not in the sense that you should use this at church, right? But that in in the same sorts of virtues, when we think about how God is asking us to live, to follow Jesus, to take up our cross and follow him, we see that lived out in this text. I I actually had the pleasure of teaching uh, two courses on religious literature when I was at the University of Dayton and teaching there after I was a doctoral student. And I used Tolkien's text, and I, what I did, I always included the Fellowship of the Ring, and I always included the chapter in the Return of the King, the scoring of the Shire, when they returned. Because I think what you see is you see these kind of fearful hobbits who have some virtue, you know, they're trying to do what's right, they don't know a whole lot, they're fairly naive, frightened easily, they come back through the difficulties, the sacrifices that they, they did, they come back battle-worn, and they've grown. They are not the same hobbits that they were. And Saruman makes a comment about this when they encounter the wizard Saruman at the end, and, they, and Frodo has mercy on him, right? And, of course, that bothers Saruman. And so we actually see this transformation take place. And I think for Tolkien, this is the transformation we all have to go through. There's a way in which the journey of the Lord of the Rings can be seen as a microcosm of every human life. All of our lives is a pilgrimage to heaven. I could say a lot more about that, but... Well, one of the things that I found really interesting was your article that really dove into kind of that background into an understanding of temptation and sin and the corrupting influence that that Tolkien clearly has, uh, and it's particularly centered around different characters' interactions with the One Ring, and and how that you know takes them on this on a on a journey that we're to avoid. And, and that some of the characters are, you know, fall, and some of them don't. And, but some of them don't by avoiding the ring at all costs. So could you talk more about that? I can. And I'll, I'll actually add something that's not in the text that I, I thought of since writing that. I think some of this is shaped by his own experience in the, in this, in the confessional as a Catholic. He went to confession very regularly. The bare minimum for Catholics is once a year. He went much more regularly than that. And I think over time, as you, you read his letters to his sons, especially his son who's married and then his son who's a seminarian becomes a, a Catholic priest, you get a sense of this. His son in the seminary is actually scandalized. We don't know, we don't know what happens or what he saw. You know, we can, our imaginations can run wild, but we don't know. But what we do know is he was struggling in his vocation, his calling to be a pastor. And uh, he had a, a difficult, difficult time. And probably one of the things that was difficult was he was seeing that not everybody's here for the same reason. And Tolkien is encouraging him, and he's encouraging him 
to trust God, throw himself at the mercy of God, and really kind of begin again. It's okay, you know, we have our own feelings, your, your friends, your colleagues, they're going to have feelings. But our call is to begin again and to trust in God's mercy and grace. And he talks about this too with his children who all go off and get married. He's got this great line about marriage. He says something along the lines of, let me see if I get this right. Something along the lines of, no man has ever been 100% faithful to his wife in both mind and deed without great effort, right? And it's very carefully qualified. He doesn't say no man's ever been, not been faithful to his wife, but without effort, without an effort to follow God. And in the confessional, right, he, you can imagine him bringing up whatever. It could be anything. It could be anger, pride. You know, you pick your, pick your sin. And again and again, right, continue over time, over the decades. And I think he, you know, he gets struggle. He understands what that means. You know, and you think of what, what Catholics talk about as an examination of conscience, kind of going through, you know, how have I loved God well? How, how have I corresponded well to God's grace? I can give thanks to God. How have I not corresponded so well to God's grace? Okay, I need to say sorry for this. And that continual reflecting in the presence of God on how am I doing? How am I doing? And you can kind of see that in this. Is, and again, this is very much, I think, rich like the screw tape letters, but less clear. Right? Screw tape letters is very clear. Here's the demon. He's going to attack you in this way. You see it in a less clear way. You kind of see it in a story way. I, I would compare it almost to the Torah, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. When we, when we walk through the Pentateuch, right, in Hebrew, we call it the Torah, the law. And yet Genesis, there's not a whole lot of law there. Exodus, at the end there is, but the first 24, 30 chapters, not a whole lot, right? And we've got the Ten Commandments. Leviticus is mostly law, not a whole lot of story. Numbers, mix, Deuteronomy, you know, mix, a lot of law. And yet what we see is the laws are shown through the narrative. You, you know, don't commit adultery. Well, you see what happens when people commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Well, let's look and see what happens when people kill. They work together. And I think Lewis, Lewis's works, in a sense, are more clear Tolkien's is, is more showing the story of how this works. And so you see these characters who are very complicated and you see the ways in which they struggle, they fall, they begin again, they avoid the ones who are best, the most successful are those who avoid, right? The temptation, like Gandalf, very careful, mm -hmm. right? Even Aragorn, they are able to flee when they know they're strong enough to be cowards. Maybe I'll put it that way. Yeah, I love that interpretation of it as, as you know, Tolkien using the story to flesh out sort of the consequences of, of sort, sort of more fundamental ideas. And, you know, what I really loved in, in reading your essays was you're pointing out the role of beauty and aesthetics and uh, the role of creation throughout the narrative, especially as a way of sort of, you know, indicating certain qualities about the universe. You know, one of the most, I think, beautiful images that, that I've ever encountered is this notion of, you know, in the Silmarillion of the, the creation of this in-universe reality through song, right? That's just a beautiful idea. It's, you know, this idea of harmony and, and sustaining it through, you know, continued song. You know, it's just chills right <laughs> but also you know it i think connects very nicely with tolkien's ideas of you know sub creation and this notion that people 
through the creation of art and myth are participating in the divine reality. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it, it's very important for Tolkien, this notion of that we, we are participants with God, right? You know, St. Paul, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are fellow workers with God, sunergoi theo esmen in Greek. And that, that notion of, of participation is important. You know, we think about Jesus' death on the cross, and we correctly think, well, Jesus, Jesus dies and he saves us. And that's right. For Tolkien as a Catholic, though, it does a lot more than that. It does that, but it empowers us to be like Christ, to be like Jesus to others, to bring him to others, but to be present in our, in our work. So when we think about Jesus and the hidden years of his, his work as a carpenter or whatever skilled workman he was with his father, Joseph, right, the foster father, Joseph, he, he's God living a human life, engaging in human activity. And so we as followers of Christ can do the same. And so Tolkien was very aware of the way in which we continue God's work in some sense by cooperating with God in our ordinary lives, in family life, in our work. And for him, right, as an author, as a poet, as an artist of sorts. And again, he's also very steeped in the medieval Christian tradition of the notion of the kind of the three transcendentals, the good, the true, the beautiful, how they coincide. Right. So beauty, what's truly beautiful for Tolkien is what is true and what is good. And what is good is beautiful and true. And what is true is good and beautiful. Right. And so I, I use the Swiss theologian Hansers from Balthazar, who had been a, a good friend of Karl Barth's and actually wrote on, on Barth. And his notion of this beauty and the, tr the truth that's described in beauty from, from Balthazar, the crucifixion of Jesus is the paradigmatic example of beauty. And you might think this is disgusting. I mean, here's this guy, probably naked, tortured to death, bleeding on the cross, humiliated. How is that beautiful? You know, what is this? This is weird. But the idea is not so much that that bloody mess, torture, pain is beauty. No, it's that what he did was he made his life a complete gift of himself. Okay. So I, I'm, you know, I'm a Catholic theologian, so I, I have reference to Catholic theological texts. And what comes to my mind are two paragraphs from the Second Vatican Council, which was held from 1962 to 1965, both from the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, what's called Gaudium et Spes. And the first is paragraph 22, where it says, if you want to understand what it means to be human, look to Jesus. Right? Why? I think the quotation is actually something along the lines of, it is the mystery of the incarnate son of God, that humanity knows what it means to be human, something along those lines. Because Jesus shows us God living a human life. And the second paragraph is paragraph 24. And that is that it is only in the making a gift of yourself that you find yourself. And this is back to Jesus's idea is that, you know, if you want to live, you shall die. And if you die, you shall live. You know, that, that notion of, our lives would be like Christ's. They are to be a gift to the others. And that's really how Tolkien understood this. And so the crucifixion, it's not beautiful because of the blood and the guts. It's beautiful because this is God's example of his love for us, that he loved us so much and he was so good that he gave his life for us. That's the beauty there. And I think that's really important for Tolkien. So beauty for Tolkien is... is a means of God wooing us. God is passionately in love with each of us, and he's kind of calling us home. He's calling us to live love, 
to respond in love. And, and that's really what that's about. I think that's gorgeous. Um, as our cat Mary tries to be the loudest cat in the entire world in the background, I'm reminded of your chapter on Marian imagery in um, in Tolkien's works, and that was such a an interesting way to read it. Uh, again, we've talked about how Tolkien didn't care for a one to one allegory, so there's not a perfect Mary character, but her imagery is all over his works. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, he talks about in his letters that. All of his ideas of beauty are shaped by his devotion to Mary. So as a Catholic, he had a very strong devotion to the saints, but a particularly a particularly Mary, right? And this is, I think, often you know misunderstood. There's a lot of ways in which sometimes Protestant traditions, and this is a case with Lewis and Tolkien, they had some kind of conflicts over their differing ways of living out their Christianity at times. If if what if what we Catholics believe is wrong about the Eucharist, we are idolaters. Okay, so some of the worst anti-Catholic criticisms of Catholics are correct if we're wrong about what we believe about the Eucharist. If we're wrong about what we believe about the saints and Mary, we're not idolaters, right? Because the intention, maybe there might be some Catholics who are, but the intention in Catholicism and for Tolkien especially, the devotion to Mary, the honor given to Mary and the saints is not that due to God. It's the honor given to an artist by, by praising the artwork, Right. So there's not a there's not intended to be a confusion between Mary and the saints and God. It's more of a devotion to the artwork, praising the artist. And so I think Tolkien would look at it very much as the artist, God, the, the prime creator, receiving glory right, from how he's worked in the lives of the others. Right. And the greatest example of how he's worked in the life of Mary. And I think this is this crosses throughout all of Christianity is that he selected her, right, to come down in the flesh when he decided, you know, who's going to be, right, the mother of, of the Son of God, who's going to mother God in human form, it's Mary. And that becomes, in a sense, her, her maternity of Jesus is really what makes her special in Catholicism and what makes her special for Tolkien. And, of course, he's seen all the religious art in England and elsewhere, and um, the literature, the medieval literature, associate with Mary. And so for him, this is very important. He thinks about Jesus and how Jesus must have loved his mother. And that gives him even more affection and devotion for Mary. So he also has a great respect for women. And I think this is really interesting. And I've seen a lot of talks done on Tolkien from feminist perspectives from, and from other perspectives on women characters. I have a colleague that writes on Tolkien in the English department. And it's really interesting. He has very strong women characters. They're very strong. They're they're beautiful. They're strong. They're brave. You know, they're kind of it's kind of amazing actually when you think about a man writing this in the you know the 1930s, talking about this in the 40s and the 20s. It's just not what you would expect, and it's not what you get even I think today from from most women. You know, I, I have no problem seeing women as strong. I mean, I've watched my wife give birth to seven children. You know, I, I you know you can see I know strength. I see you know I have no doubt that my wife is a tougher individual. She has far more fortitude than I have. I can never do that. And there's, so there's a, but there's a strength there, but there's also a difference there. And he recognizes that he sees a difference, right? And he, you know, he sees a strength in his wife. His wife is a great image of this as well. I think these, these themes come together in, in strength and beauty in, in a way in which for a husband, a wife draws him or should draw him closer to God. And I believe he believed his wife did that. 
And as you know, wife, husband should draw her closer to God. You know, who knows if that was the case for Edith, his wife. C.S. Lewis used to say that Tolkien was the most married man he knew. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I don't. I don't know if that's. I don't know if that's the reality of how his wife. I mean, the, the better testimony would be if his wife said that. I mean, that's his, people always say they had this amazing marriage. Thomas More had an amazing marriage. You know, and they had some rough spots and they worked through it. But I don't know. It's hard to tell. But Mary was very important for him because in Mary he found kind of the image of what God can do to us if we let him. Right? The church fathers, the early Christians used to say that whenever we follow the will of God in our own lives, we're kind of becoming like Mary. We're allowing God to be born again right here and right now in the concrete circumstances of my life. Right? Because God wants to live again through me. That's kind of the point. Tolkien doesn't articulate it that way, but you kind of see in his in his vision of, of these female characters, right? There really aren't, I mean, Shalob might the spider might be a kind of a, a female spirit creature, Ungoliant, right? Maybe you don't have really many really evil female characters. You have heroic female characters that are as heroic or more heroic than the male characters. And I, anyway, and I think he saw this in Mary. <laughs> did you lose your thought? I did. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's really beautiful. And, and I had never really considered that before uh, reading that essay, that truly all of the analogous to human characters that were women were heroes and brave. And and also just the, the imagery of them being described as bluish or light or glowing. I, I had never really made that Mary connection before, but it makes absolute sense. And it will probably alter how I picture them from now on. But I, I think that once again, like kind of speaks to how Tolkien sets kind of that religious imagery in the background. Right. And lets us absorb it without, without like forcing it on us. And that, and that draws us deeper into his story, but also deeper into the faith tradition at the same time. John, did you regain your thought? I did. I finally figured it out. Um, it, it's a slight pivot, but I think it connects really nicely, Brian, to what you were just saying. And that's uh, one of the points I think you made in the Mary essay is that, you know, one of the things about Tolkien's fantasy world is there is really not a sort of organized religious structure per se. There are no priests. People have a sort of attention to and devotion to certain figures who, you know, they, they can call out to in times of need. You know, there's, there's a sense of sort of a deeper reality that people are aware of. Some people, you know, so some characters even remember it, right? You know, you have these sort of immortal elven characters who have experienced uh, a sort of world and time before time in the sense of Middle Earth. But, you know, the depiction of religion is a much more sort of uh, natural, organic thing than we might expect in, you know, some other sort of fantasy worlds. You know, especially, I'm thinking especially of George R. R. Martin, where the religious structures in his fantasy world are much, much more about contributing to the contribution for power in that world. Whereas in Tolkien, there's just sort of this really wonderful, beautiful, sort of ephemeral uh, religious reality that, that underlies everything that the, the characters, you know, definitely can reach out towards and see, but also, you know, there's not 
necessarily a kind of organizational pressure to I don't know what I'm trying to get at here. <laughs> I think I understand. I understand and I agree. But I, I think the reason is because, and this might sound weird, might sound strange, but I think the reason is because he wanted us to see the Middle Earth as the real world. And what I mean by that is, you know, would he, were he to have kind of an alternative religious background, that sort of thing that's really clear, that would be, it would be almost like uh, more fake, more, you know, if that makes any sense. What I, what I mean is, I think his religious background, it's soaked into kind of the natural aspects of the text. So what those things function as for us as Catholics, right? The saints, they're showing, he's showing the relationships, right? Like, or the angels, the elves, that sort of thing. All those kind of connections that I, I make in there, the Valar are actually more angelic in a sense than the, than the elves. But those sorts of connections he's trying to make. I mean, it's kind of like, there's a wonderful text by a scholar named uh, Robert Orsi. Uh, Thank you, St. Jude. And he's got another one, the Madonna of 100 and whatever street. I forgot the exact title. But what he does in there, he's got a line that always stuck with me. He's very careful. He's kind of, uh, his, he does more objective study of religion, kind of distant, more like an agnostic perspective, though he's Catholic. Um, but he does a very good job, I think, of not being reductionistic, of reducing and thinking it's all fake. But he's got this line where this, this mother, this woman, this grandmother, she's got the St. Jude statue in the back and she's upset with him in the seat. You know, you're not coming home to dinner today. And it looks really superstitious even you know, even to me, you know. But what he says is this. He says, no, no, it's not superstitious for her. Why? Because St. Jude is a real person for her, right? And she's upset with him just as she's upset with the butcher. What do you mean this costs, you know, 20 bucks a pound? You know, come on, you're not coming over for dinner on Friday. That's how she treats the grocer and the butcher, right? That's how she treats the saints because they are as real to her as these figures. It would be superstitious if I did it because I don't treat people that way, right? And I can kind of, you know, the old Italian grandmother or the Portuguese grandmother, you can kind of envision this. And what Tolkien is trying to do is explain, right? The angels are real. Saints are real, right? These elves and Valar and others are real. They don't have to have a constructed thing. What we do is, in a sense, what they're doing, but we have it in a, you know, an organized way or whatever. I mean, he's not doing this consciously. I'm just trying to argue that it's part of his background. It's part of his, his own way of understanding reality. And so it seeps through here. I mean, the same is with the sacrament. Tolkien's very into the sacraments, right? So the Lord's Supper for him is huge. I mean, he talks about what, he, what Catholics call the Eucharist, all over the place in his letters, all over the place. And he understands it very well. And he's got these very moving descriptions. And he even gives hints that the lembas, the elven bread is kind of like that, but it's not the same. It's not structured. It's not, it's not the same at all. But I think it's in, his, it's in his makeup, this idea, right? Sacraments for Catholics are sensible signs that communicate invisible grace. And I think what he's trying to communicate is that just as Jesus in the Gospels, when he heals people, it's often through touch. Or he'll take mud and spit and put it on their eyes. He doesn't need that, but we need it. The idea for Tolkien is we are created sensible like animals, and yet we're also spiritual like angels, but we're kind of both. And so we're created such that we understand reality through our sensory experience and so the logic of the sacrament 
follows that. And so for Tolkien, that's the logic of Middle Earth, is that the invisible aids, whether it's the light from Galadriel's vial, whether it's that extra strength from the Lembas, you know, whatever it may be, comes to the figures through these kind of sensible realities. Yeah, and I think really what strikes me about this image, because you use the term in your essay, a, a sacramental universe, right? This notion that it's just, it's it's baked in at multiple levels. And I think what really strikes me is how he has introduced, at least at the level of, you know, faith in his writing, a lack of artifice. There's this unified sort of agreed upon metaphysic that people seem to share and then, of course, the other material, all the other conflict comes from the competition within that metaphysic as opposed to, you know, competing ideas and notions of reality. Yeah, very much. I think that's very true. That's definitely true. Anybody else got any other thoughts or questions? Which of the Lord of the Rings books is your favorite? The Fellowship of the Ring. That was a solid, quick answer. Fact, I'm re- I'm, I know. I mean, I'm sorry. I, you know, I, I'm reading it right now. I'm rereading it to, to my, uh, my one of my sons, two of my sons. One's a little too young for it, but for both of them, as I put them to bed at night. And it really is The Fellowship of the Ring. I like the slow pace and in sections. I, a lot of what I really love about Tolkien, it's all there. The, the story, narrative. And I actually love reading it to my children especially for the first time for them, because you can see their excitement because they don't know what's going to happen. So it's it kind of relives it. But Fellowship of the Ring. I love that. What about you, Brian, since you brought up the question? So I, I've always been a fan of Return of the King. I like the redemption arc. Yeah, that's great. That's wonderful. My, my favorite of all of Tolkien's writings, I have two, the two favorite things that he's written that I, I have that I like even better than the Fellowship of the Ring would be the story of Baron and Luthien in the Silmarillion, which has now been expanded to its own book. And his short essay, Leaf by Niggle, which is, I, I really love. Those are my two favorite of all of the things he's written. Yeah, I will always have a special place in my heart for The Hobbit, which, you know, as just sort of a story, uh, I, I actually, very similar to you, when I read The Hobbit, I read it very, very quickly. You know, I, I don't think I read it in a single night, but I definitely remember finishing it in like two or three days and just being reading it constantly. And, and something about that story really, uh, I think opened up a lot of really wonderful doors for me in terms of reading modern fantasy. And, you know, I just finished children of Huron, which, Oh yeah. Wonderful. Yes. Yeah. And <laughs> weirdly enough, I'm actually enjoying more of the essays in the back of the book now go figure. But yeah. What about you, Garrett, Sarah, do you guys have, thoughts on this topic i can't pick a favorite probably the hobbit just because it was the first i was exposed to i like the imagery and the uh, two towers is just really visceral um to me i whenever i write it's always laden with you know just describing scenes or sounds and i think i really get that there in a different sense than i do the other books so uh the two towers sort of have done it for me <laughs> well that's really great well, it's probably time for us to start to wind down. And so each week we close on a question that's, you know, I think meant a little bit to help us to be a little more centered and a little more gracious and, and full of gratitude. Uh, what is giving you guys joy this week? And Jeff, would you like to go first or do you want to 
Sure, that's fine. What's giving me joy this week is my my seven-month-old daughter, Anna Therese, who's growing and crawling and laughing and doing all these wonderful things. What a beautiful name. That's very sweet. I love that. What about the rest of you guys? I am enjoying being in my new home. Uh, The saga of you coming home finally has come to an end. Now you can uh, go back to uh, grooming your mustache in the way that it should. Looking, a, it looked a little rough the the last couple of times. Um, I'm gonna say that there is a large uh, spider outside of our house um, that I've named uh, Tiffany, and um, it's just one of those nice fall things. And uh, there's just a huge, beautiful, patterned spider, and uh, that's gonna be my very strange thing I'm grateful for this week. The sublime beauty of nature, right? That's what you're getting at. That is a nicer way to say it. Yes. Very good, Brian. I feel like your coming home narrative really would fit very nicely as a story in a sermon someday. Like you could really, I think, ham this up and turn this into something. I mean, you know, the the joke is that preachers can turn anything into anything, right? They can take any story and make meaning out of it, regardless. As for me. I think what's bringing me joy right now is Garrett's constant jokes about Brian's non-existent mustache. (laughs) It's really, it's become sort of a familiar thing, and I'm really, really looking forward to putting this on a t-shirt. I'm hoping Sarah's going to do the graphic design soon. Sure, yeah. What's giving me life or joy this week has also been a constant need for energy and and life uh, has been the eight-month-old or nine-month-old puppy that we welcomed into the house. So lots of wiggly energy and uh, just we're going through training and obedience with him. So it's been giving me life, but also uh, it's just been you know, trying patience too. So <laughs> I'm deeply disappointed that you haven't, you waited until the podcast to tell us about this puppy. Yeah. Well, you know, only, this is only day four. So. Okay. We're uh, going to have words after we stop recording. That's no four thing. days too many. You should have sent pictures and video on hour one, not day one, hour one, Garrett. All right. Uh-huh. Uh, well, let's see if I can ask for forgiveness and repent and find grace here. I don't know. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Um, well, Dr. Moore, this has been an utter delight. Thank you so much for speaking with us. If people want to find your book, where can they find it? Uh, Amazon. Amazon.com is the easiest place. Okay. Probably. We'll throw up a link in the, the episode bio. Uh, any closing words for anybody? No, I just uh, I think that you uh, just enjoy the riches that you have in ordinary life. I love it. A perfect place to end. Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logosish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, 
be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media under the handle at logosishpod. Please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast. That helps us get the word out about all the stuff that we're working on, and we'd love to hear your feedback as well. Have a wonderful week.